Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition and their Up First podcast. He's been, well, he hasn't been everywhere. He's been a lot of places. He's seen a lot of things. And he's interviewed a bunch of people, including some we all know, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, for instance. He's also the author of multiple books, including Instant City, Jackson Land, Imperfect Union, and his latest book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, which is what we'll be talking about today. Steve Inskeep, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation. It's good to be talking with you. So I thought I would start with probably the most obvious question, and that is, I don't have to tell you that there are a bunch of Lincoln books out there. And so why did you decide you were going to write your own? I was intimidated by the prospect at first, I admit, because there are so many. But I had written two other books in the 19th century that you just mentioned, Imperfect Union and Jackson Land. And Lincoln was a minor character in each of them. And it's been somebody that that I was uh, attracted to as a historical character ever since I was a kid growing up in Indiana, not far from where you are. Obviously, uh, Lincoln was born in Kentucky and then spent most of his youth in Indiana. So when you grow up in Indiana, you learn a lot about him, maybe even more than other places. And I've always had like books about Lincoln in my house, and Lincoln speeches, like collections of Lincoln speeches and so forth, which I just kind of read for pleasure. So I, I think about the guy a lot, which, of course, doesn't make me unique. There are millions of people who are Lincoln obsessives. And I hesitated to dive in at all, except that I felt that having done the other research in the 19th century, that I began to have my own view of his life and times and my own understanding of his writings and sayings and speeches. and came up with this concept that is not solely about Lincoln, but is about Lincoln's meetings with people who differed with him, who had a different background, a different class, a different race, a different gender, or above all, a different opinion, a disagreement. And the more that I wrote the, the more that I felt first it could express the diversity of America in its time. I, I know that it's a time when white men had virtually all the power and the vast majority of the attention, but of course there were other people out there, just as there are today. It was a very diverse country then as it is now, and I wanted to showcase that. And beyond that, I realized that the disagreement is the essence of the story and what's most important to talk today because it's a night of time just as we face now. Yeah, and I, th- I felt I- I'm somebody who's read more than a few Lincoln books myself. And so when I heard that you had come out with one, I thought, okay, what's going to make this different? And I was I was very pleased to see that it, it really is different in a lot of important ways. And so I can absolutely recommend this book to people, even if they've already read Lincoln books. This is a different sort of way of approaching the, the president and his and the people he dealt with. And definitely I felt it was worthwhile for that reason. And so worth, a worthy addition, I would say, to the number of books on Lincoln. But but let's let's talk about Lincoln himself. Uh, you know, I think there's this popular image or myth of Lincoln, right? He's this rough-hewn guy came out of abject poverty, and he's a kind of a paragon of civic virtue, and you know he saved the Union, all that. I, when you hear that sort of, I guess, caricature, I'll call it, of Lincoln, what do you think is the most right on the mark there, and what do you think maybe misses it a little bit, or maybe even a lot? Well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is truth in all the parts of the legend that you just described, but everything is suddenly a little different, as it sounds like you know pretty well. For example, that he rose out of poverty. That is absolutely true from our perspective. I suppose it might be more common to say that he had an ordinary upbringing for the early 19th century in this part of the world. Most people were poor by our standards or even by the standards of that time, but it was a very hard existence and one that We, from our comfortable century, at least comfortable for many of us, most of us materially, have trouble almost relating to the idea of a family that lost their land in a bizarre title dispute in Kentucky and decided to move 100 miles to what was then a frontier area. And Abraham Lincoln at that point is seven years old, and his father hands him an axe and says, time to start hacking away and helping me clear the trees off this land. And he spent the next 15, 16 years mostly doing manual labor, having less than a year of education, losing his mother 
when he was less than 10 years old. A lot of tragedies and setbacks and difficulties in his life, even though, as I said, I think it was almost a normal life for a lot of people. It still was incredible that he was able to rise. But this is another thing where there's a subtle and I think more important difference. We learned, or at least I learned as a kid, of the legend of Lincoln the Reader, who was obsessed with books and went a long way to get a book, would walk for miles to borrow a book. There are all kinds of stories. But when you look into what record there is of what books that he was reading, you realize it wasn't an incredible variety of books that were available on the frontier in southern Indiana in the early 1800s. But what was available to study that was directly relevant to his later life was people. I'm not saying the books weren't important. The books were important. But I think it was more significant the way that he studied other human beings. And there are lots of accounts of that. His stepmother telling this amazing story of how her stepson would watch quietly in the corner when other grown-ups came to the cabin to talk with his parents. And when the grown-ups left, the visitors left, Abraham Lincoln would be asking his parents all kinds of questions. He wanted to understand everything down to the smallest detail. And he was filing these things away. And you realize this is a guy who, who studied people and who thought about their motivations in life, who by the time that he was an adult, had enormous amount of information in his head about the motivations of people. And that kind of information, I realized, is reflected in the speeches and letters that I later read in, in, in books that I would pick up and read for pleasure. Like, why did he argue against slavery in a particular way and not in another way? Why did he take the political positions that he did? And his understanding of human nature, I think, helps at least for me to explain a lot of that. So I, I think it's just about as you, you hinted in your question. I mean, there's this, there's this legend that's sort of true, but everything is, you know, just a few steps over to the left of where we thought it was. Before we get to his amazing skills with, with understanding people, I want to go back a little bit to his upbringing because he, he seems to be sort of the opposite of what we might call today. He's an anti-Nepo baby, right? And I, I, I wonder, when I think about a lot of modern politicians, their backgrounds are not at all like that. I, I remember there was a quote, by, I believe it was Ann Richards about George W. Bush saying, you know, Grew up, I came out in third base and thought he hit a triple or something like that. And, you know, yeah. Donald, Donald yeah. Trump, right, the, the son of a multimillionaire. And, and I wonder, in, in your delving into Lincoln's life, when you think about how those early experiences of maybe not poverty, but certainly not having power and, and, and influence handed to him, how do you think they affected him? And, and maybe how do you think that that matters today when there are very few modern politicians who seem that can have a similar sort of upbringing they can point to. Yeah, I think that it gave him a feel for ordinary people and perhaps drove his ambition and his approach to life, also his approach to people. He was a very humble guy. And that comes through in all of his writings and his speeches. He would repeatedly speak of himself in a self-deprecating way. And he would em even emphasize his lack of education, less than a year of formal education. He would emphasize coming from the humble walks of life. There's a point at which he says that his entire upbringing can be summed up in a phrase, something like the short and simple annals of the poor. So I, I drew that little distinction about poverty, but he wasn't afraid to, to use it in talking about his upbringing at all. And th that was part of his image and his self-image. And it's one of the things that makes him a very relatable figure to a lot of us, a lot of us, even though he also is a kind of mysterious figure in in some ways. But the interesting thing about this to me is that in spite of his humility, he was a confident person. In fact, it seems to me that his humility came from a place of confidence. He did not advertise or brag about himself because he had some idea of who he was and felt that he didn't necessarily need to. He also was responding politically to what I call in the book the culture of equality, which draws from everything that I've read about the era, draws from observations, including the most famous of all Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America, talking about the centrality of the idea of equality in American life. 
and the importance that everybody wants to be equal with everybody else. And that one of the worst things you can do is to get above yourself, as was a phrase that was much more popular then than it is now. I, you know, trying to think that you're better than everybody else or showing that you're, you think you're better than, than, than everybody else. Lincoln was aware of the dangers of that politically and personally. And he would always position himself as the more humble guy, I think, because he understood the political advantage of that. This is another one where it's like there is a reality there that I think gave him a, improved his understanding of people. And there is a reality there that shaped his politics. And there's also the image, the way he made use of that, 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 that background, that background politically. I guess we should pause for a minute because somebody is listening and saying there wasn't a culture of equality in the 19th century because there was slavery. And that is, you know, I'll just, I'll just pause to note that's absolutely, absolutely true. I mean, to say at the very, very least, there were limitations to the culture of equality and many people would only apply it to white people or people like themselves or native born Americans. People had ways to slice it up. But the ordinary basic idea was the idea that people should be equal. And if your neighbor started act, putting on airs, to give another kind of classic phrase, you might be inclined to drag them down. Yeah, I, when you talk about Lincoln's self-deprecating sense of humor and just the kind of just folk sort of thing, also you mentioned how he's such a great storyteller. Immediately, that called to mind to me a much more modern American president, and that's Ronald Reagan. And it seems to me that at least in those respects, there were maybe certain similarities. And I was wondering if that was something that, that you felt was, was the case at all, or, or, or what do you think? Hmm. Were they similar in that sense? Oh, now that, that's really interesting. I mean, Reagan was a great storyteller and would choreograph stories to tell at the State of the Union address. And Lincoln was a great storyteller in conversation, and everything would remind him of a story. In fact, he would sometimes drive people crazy because they wanted an answer to a question that maybe Lincoln didn't want to answer. So as they were talking, he'd be reminded of a story, which would steer the entire conversation off course. I think that they used storytelling just a little bit differently in this way. Lincoln told those kinds of stories in ordinary conversation. If he's in a small group of people, he's at dinner or he's in a meeting in his office, he'd be reminded of a tale that would become almost a parable and make whatever point he wanted to make. You know, this reminds me of an Irishman who, whatever, he would have different <laughs> stories in, in that way. But his speeches, his speeches are, I don't want to say entirely because there's so many, but largely, generally devoid of storytelling. They don't do the kind of thing that modern speeches do and that Ronald Reagan commonly did, of saying, let me tell you the tale of a working mother in Idaho whose story is going to tug at your heartstrings. Let me tell you the tale of the boys at Point de Hoc who, who, who went, you know, who went ashore at, at D-Day, he, he, that, which is the thing that Reagan would do and that a lot of other politicians try to do, sometimes very well and sometimes just very, very badly. Lincoln didn't do that in his great speeches. In his great speeches, Lincoln would reason with people. Lincoln would have a line of logic. He would have an argument. He would work through the argument for or against a particular policy on slavery. He would work through the idea of what America was. He would work through the idea of equality. And it's remarkable to me. I mean, there's nothing like it today that I can think of that is, that is equivalent where he might stand in the Lincoln Douglas debates for an hour or a half hour at a time. He might even stand alone on stage himself for up to three hours at a time reasoning with the audience. And he managed to do that in a compelling way, I guess, that not everyone ran away from him before the speech was over. And he could do this in a memorable fashion. I, I can't think of anything quite like it. And that is a difference I would draw between Reagan's storytelling and Lincoln's storytelling, the forum in which they'd tell stories. Yeah, and certainly the the, the public to which they were speaking was very different. There's a, a media theorist, uh, a guy named Neil Postman, who suggested that the Lincoln-Douglas de debates today would simply not be possible, at least in the 1980s when he was writing, simply because the public has changed so much that even if we had someone with those sort of rhetorical skills of an Abraham Lincoln, translating them into a modern setting would be uh, not oh, just challenging, but yeah. impossible. 
Well, you know, I, I would agree with that partly in that, I mean, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were each three hours long, and one guy spoke for an hour, the other got an hour and a half, and then the first guy came back for half an hour. And it's hard to imagine people sitting still for that, especially since they most of them probably wouldn't be there in person, as was true with the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you know, eating lunch or something. They would be watching on TV or watching on a small screen on their phone, and they'd be continuously distracted by other things, and they'd never get to get to the end of it. But the, the reason I wanted to jump in is I feel that some modified version of that might be tenable. And I guess I would watch it. Like, suppose that instead of the presidential kind of debates that we see now, where everybody is given 90 seconds or 60 seconds or 30 seconds to respond, I mean, suppose they were given five minutes, just five minutes. And then the other guy gets five minutes and just go back and forth, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. Then, at least conceivably, each candidate might have a chance to do in short form the thing that Lincoln did, develop a line of logic, reason with the audience, give more than one fact to support their argument, make a little bit more complex argument. And, you know, I don't know, maybe everybody would stop watching that and find each five minutes unbearable. But it could very well be that that there'd be a really interesting dialogue going back and forth. It would be different than really kind of shallow and not very useful debates we have now. Yeah, I I certainly would love to see something like that. You know, one thing, though, even if we put aside the issue of whether or not Lincoln's rhetorical style would work in the 21st century, one thing I think it's clear that to be a successful politician, you need to understand people. You need to be a good observer, a sharp observer of human psychology. And, and, and I'm wondering, when you think about Lincoln and his clear, enormous skills in that realm, do you feel that that he stands above even all of the modern politicians that you've had a chance to see in many cases up close? Was he sort of a unicorn in that sense, or do we still see a lot of that today, just maybe in a different way? Oh, I doubt that he's a unicorn, but he was especially skilled in this area. And he had a view of humanity that when you first hear it, sounds a little dark. He told his friend and law partner, William Herndon, that he believed that people always acted out of self-interest, that whatever they did, even if it was something out of love or altruism or patriotism, could be traced back to self-interest. They were getting some benefit or they were getting some pleasure out of that, which sounds really dark. And when you realize that that's something he told his friend, you can go back into his speeches and letters and realize that he used the word interest a lot, more than a lot of other words. He talked about people's interests all the time. So it sounds really dark, but you realize that's kind of what politics needs to be about. It is often not personal. It is about guarding your interests against other people who might have different interests that clash with yours and trying to mediate those interests in some ways through a republic or through democracy, through the rule of law. That is what politics is about. And Lincoln's goal was to engage people's self-interest in a moral cause if he could. And there would be way, way more cynical views, way, way more cynical ways to approach that idea of self-interest, to kind of be a politician as a con artist, to be a politician as a manipulator, to be a politician who gets people basically to give away their money through some kind of scam. Lincoln was talking to an overwhelmingly white audience. And I guess we should pause to remember that in Illinois, where he lived his early political year, the electorate, a political career, the electorate was 100% white. Across the United States, the electorate was not 100% white, but it was almost entirely white. There were a few states where black men could vote. So he's talking to white men almost exclusively, and he's trying to persuade them why slavery was bad, except most of them, like many of them already knew that. I mean, this widely held view in America that slavery was was evil or an evil. This is a word that was often used. But the crazy thing is it was used by people who weren't doing anything about it. It was used even by some slave owners who continued to practice it. They would say it's terrible this organization of society, but then they would have a rationalization. This is the way things are. Or they would have a prejudiced view of black people that this is the best that can be done for them. Or they would have a rationalization if they lived in the North and far away from 
very populous slave states, why it would be bad for them to end slavery. Slavery is terrible, but if those people were freed, they might come up here in search of work. Or there might be some kind of race war between black and white men, and that would be terrible for everyone, and even worse, worst of all for black people. They would have these rationalizations for why they shouldn't do anything about it. Essentially saying, in effect, slavery is bad, but it's in my interest to leave things as they are. And Lincoln, recognizing this, tried to talk to white voters about why it would be in their interest to end slavery, or at least to restrict slavery in the hope that it would someday end. And he would say, if you don't restrict slavery, it's going to spread into your state and harm you. It's going to affect the free labor system where you have a right to be paid. You can sympathize with a black woman who should be paid for her labor because you want to be paid for your labor. You believe in America and you're part of America and it's your, in your interests for America to prosper. And slavery is a disgrace that makes a mockery of America's self image as a beacon of liberty in the world. So he would frame these arguments in a way that a voter would be told, and in many cases it seems to me believe, that slavery was bad for them. Again, I mean, that's a potentially cynical or dark way to look at people, but Lincoln just thought it was real, and this informed his his rhetoric, and I think we can agree that in the end he was pretty successful. It seems also what, what comes through in the book is Lincoln's patience. And uh, maybe even by the standards of his time, he was a fairly a patient guy. And I want to talk a little bit about how you feel that exceptional patience served him in trying to get where he wanted or get the country where he wanted to go. And if that's maybe something of a lost, I don't even call it an art or a skill or a character trait, I guess. Oh, oh, my gosh. Yes. And this is something that it seems that that all the rules of society and all the incentives of society point us in the other way. We're encouraged to act instantly, to respond instantly, to be angry instantly and answer the angry social media message with one of our own, to lash out at people that seem to lash out or annoy us. We're also urged to buy the thing right away, to purchase the product that is going to make us feel morally superior, to look down on other people and judge them instantly. And I suppose probably, you know, human beings have always been like that to some extent. And we have incentives today that just kind of play on that and exploit that and encourage more and more of that. And Lincoln was very much inclined in the opposite direction. And it was one of his great skills to take the long view and also to be patient, to not necessarily answer every insult. People would publicly attack him and he would meet them calmly and talk with them and make them allies or remain their ally if they'd been a, an ally before. If he did respond to a public attack, and we could talk about examples where he did, he would turn it to his own purpose. He would use the response to send some larger message to the larger public that would follow his response and his political conflict, like an exchange of open letters that he had with Horace Greeley in 1862. He was aware that in attacking slavery, he was attacking a problem that had evolved over centuries and would take a long time to unravel. Uh, in fact, it turned out because of the Civil War, he was able to kill it far quicker than he probably ever imagined that he could possibly have done. And even then, it took years and was a far from perfect ending of it. So he was he was thinking big. He was thinking about system. He thought about the system of slavery and the laws that upheld slavery and why they were wrong. And he didn't think simply in terms of virtue signaling saying something right now that would make him look good to the most radical people. He thought in terms of, of defining a system as wrong and taking practical measures that he could against the system, knowing that his measures, while practical, would not be the end of the story and wouldn't even end slavery yet. He was just working on it. Do, do you think that when, when you talk about how he dealt with many of his critics, it seemed to me that that approach of not just answering them, but but actively engaging them, that's something we don't see a whole lot of these days. And I, I, I'm sure you've had experiences with that. I've had it on a limited basis. That takes an awful lot of energy and time to do. And I just came away awfully impressed by anyone who has the ability to do that at the level that Lincoln did. Yeah, yeah. Just even the act of listening to the other person's criticism, uh, as he did with Frederick Douglass, and saying, well, you're right about this part, but you're wrong about this other part. 
You know, Douglas had criticized him for being slow and vacillating in his attack on slavery. He was slow to issue the Emancipation Proclamation to give the single biggest example, but there were others. And in finally meeting with Frederick Douglass, which is one of the 16 meetings in this book, Lincoln says, I would allow that, that, you know, there's some case for saying that I've been slow. But once I take a position, I do not vacillate. I don't think that that can be sustained. That case can be sustained against me. I think that it cannot be shown that I ever retreat from a position once I have taken it. He was a stubborn guy, too. He was patient and he was flexible. But when he settled in something that he had thought all the way through and was convinced about, he would stick stick with it. And it it seems the attacks that he got, you mentioned Douglas attacking him sort of from the left, if you will. And obviously there were there were plenty of people on the right who just hated him with it with an intensity that's really just staggering. How did he how did he respond to that? Because he was getting it from from all sides, literally. Yeah, I mean, he, he was getting it from both sides. He had befriended slave holders or men from slaveholding families throughout his life. He remained friends with these people. He would talk to them. There's a guy named Duff Green that tried to talk him out of the Civil War, basically, by agreeing to enshrine slavery in the Constitution, which Lincoln was not willing to do. But he had the conversation with the guy when he showed up in Springfield before Lincoln went down to his presidential inauguration. The title of the book, Differ We Must, is a line from a Lincoln a line from a letter that Lincoln wrote to his best friend, Joshua Speed, who was from a slaveholding family. And Speed had acknowledged in the abstract that slavery was wrong, but Lincoln thought that he was not politically serious about doing something about it. And he criticized Speed for his politics, and but then said, if for that we must differ, differ we must. And then signed off the letter, your friend forever. So he kept at people and he kept working on them and didn't necessarily didn't necessarily abandon them. Of course, there's a point at which he is going to, you know, I mean, he ends up fighting a civil yeah. war because people made war on the Constitution. So there are limits to this this sort of thing. But he he tried to keep lines open to to I was going to say both sides, but I really should say all sides. I mean, all kinds of people who had disagreeable opinions or horrible opinions of different kinds. But he understood that in a democracy, the guy who is wrong still has a vote. And so that means he has power and you have to deal with him. And so he would try to do that. He would try to make that person an ally. And if he couldn't make that person an ally, he would still talk to him and see if he could gain some advantage from their, their, their interaction. He also, it seems to me, had an almost uncanny feel for where the public was and how much he could push at any given time. And this, of course, it's not like he had modern polling to rely on or anything like that. And that that to me is another way in which maybe he's not a unicorn, but his his feeling not just for individual people, but for what the country could take at any given point, how far he could push things, I think was is also fairly remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we should put one asterisk on that. And that is we don't know the counterfactual. We can't really run the experiment. If Lincoln had done the Emancipation Proclamation a year earlier, would it have worked or would it have failed? We don't actually know the answer to that question. It was very risky to issue the Emancipation Proclamation even when he did, because he did not want to lose. There there were a lot of slaveholders and slave states, several slave states, that had remained loyal to the Union, and he really needed those states. He needed that territory. He needed their men in the army. He needed everything he could get out of them. And so, so he was he was taking a risk whenever he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and he chose the time based on the political situation and the legal situation. Congress had recently passed a bill giving him the authority to do this sort of thing, and a lot of other factors. He chose the time. We can't prove that he waited exactly the right time, and that if he did it a different time, it wouldn't have worked. But I guess we do know that it did work when he issued it. We should also add that he issued it at a cost. He didn't pick the moment when it was going to be universally popular to do that. The Emancipation Proclamation, as it sounds like you know really well, was massively criticized. He put it out during a midterm campaign in the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862. And then there's a bunch of congressional elections on a variety of dates like October, November, 
and for a variety of other kinds of elections for various offices across the country. And his party does really badly. They really get hammered in Congress and they get hammered for other offices. And even the state legislature in Lincoln's own state of Illinois flips from Lincoln's Republican Party to basically the pro-slavery Democratic Party, which immediately is denouncing the Emancipation Proclamation and taking over the, the, the legislature. He paid a price. There was even a time when it looked like he might lose the 1864 election because the Emancipation Proclamation was so unpopular in certain circles. And that is something to remember. He was a calculating politician, but he struggled immensely with the choice of when to do this and exactly how to do this. And there was a price that he did pay politically for doing it although he knew that he needed to survive politically for his act to survive. And he did just well enough that his party didn't quite lose control of Congress in 1862. And then, of course, he was reelected in 1864. Yeah, I, when you say that, it reminds me that I think for a lot of people, there's this sort of oversimplification of the period where you had the Republicans in the North and they were all against slavery and we were united up here against the South, which was all again. It, it was really I mean, there were all kinds of coalitions within coalitions. It was a it was a tricky environment to to navigate in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that's the thing to remember about this. We see this as a, an issue of absolute clarity. Slavery is wrong. And I don't know, maybe there's there are a few people listening to us who think slavery was fine. But in any case, and I know there are people who minimize slavery, but there was a great variety of opinion at the time. We alluded to this before. There were a few people, abolitionists, who saw with absolute clarity and proclaimed with absolute clarity how wrong slavery was and demanded that it end right now. There was a number of people, primarily in the South, but not exclusively in the South, who thought that slavery was fine or even that slavery was the ideal organization of society. It was the way that things should be. I mean, when the Confederates started the Civil War, they said explicitly they were doing it to enshrine slavery. And Alexander H. Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, gave a speech in which he said that slavery was the cornerstone of their new republic because the idea that all men are created equal was a mistake. I mean, there were people like that. But there was this great mass of people in the middle who as I mentioned, vaguely thought that slavery was wrong, or even specifically and harshly thought that slavery was wrong, but had a variety of opinions about what to do about it. And I don't know that you could have, if they'd been polling then, I don't know that you could have gotten 51% of people to endorse any particular exact view of slavery and, and what to do about it. Lincoln was struggling desperately to build a political coalition, which is part of the work that I, I chronicle in these 16 meetings is trying to figure out who he can get to work with him and on what terms. And what 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 amazed me, I use that word a lot because he's an amazing guy, but he brought some of these people who he struggled with actually into his cabinet, these really strong personalities like Seward. And it seems to me that's a real difference from what we see a lot of today, where there's more of a tendency to find yes people, you know, go loyal foot soldiers kind of thing. But but Lincoln found a way to kind of pull that off somehow. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is a really interesting thing. I mean, and Doris Kearns Goodwin got a lot of attention for her book, Team of Rivals, which has got to be like the biggest Lincoln book of, of my lifetime. I mean, there's a, there's a few that, that are, are preeminent, and that's a big one, which became that movie, of course, which is a great movie, Lincoln. And we get that picture of, of that. I, I cover one of these people, Seward, as one of my one of my 16, and there are a few others, several others who appear from time to time. Lincoln did ally with these men who he basically agreed with about slavery. They didn't have a big difference in the issues necessarily, but in terms of personality and ambition, they certainly did clash because so many of them wanted to be president. In our time, Barack Obama consciously modeled himself after Lincoln in a good number of ways politically which is a thing we could discuss at length. But we could start by noting that Obama declared his first presidential campaign, the 2008 presidential campaign, with an event at the old state capitol in Springfield, Illinois, where Abraham Lincoln had served as a state legislator. And we could go on to your point to observe who Obama ended up working with in his administration. And many people would explicitly draw that team of rivals comparison 
because Joe Biden, who had run against him for president, was nominated as his vice president. And Hillary Clinton, who had run against him for president, became his secretary of state. That was clearly like trying to bring together different wings and different personalities of the Democratic Party in one administration. I think that in the end, Obama also focused on, I mean, there was that line about no drama Obama. He did not want to have a lot of infighting between various members of his cabinet and in his administration. He just wanted the job to be done. And he tried to make it clear at all times that all these people were working for him. Lincoln ended up having a little more fractious group of people that would have almost open disputes. I, I don't know if they always made the papers necessarily, but they were, they were, they were battling all the time. And, you know, in the end, there were people like Salmon P. Chase, who he had to kick out of his cabinet, although he then found another use for him. I mean, there's, there, Lincoln had a, probably a more contentious relationship with his people than Obama did later on. But it occurs to me, this comes back to something you mentioned earlier, is it's really something you can't do something like that unless you have that and the fundamental rock solid confidence that you know who you are and what you're about. Yeah. And it's okay yeah. that you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room in every single room you're in. And I think you can make a case that if you have a president who doesn't have that confidence in their own abilities, that's that's just not going to be possible. And they're going to be a lot, of, oh, a lot of other things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think Lincoln probably believed he was the smartest guy in most rooms, but he didn't need to assert that. He didn't need to make the other person feel that way. And that is that is a matter of confidence. He also clearly had confidence that he was the president, that he was in charge, even though he was figuring out how to do the job, which was a terrible struggle. He'd never run anything more than a two-person law firm. But you can see that in his early dealings with Seward, which is one of my one of my chapters. He could take a lot of su of ego and presumption by Seward because he knew that he got to make the decision in the end. And he certainly made a lot of contentious decisions. And some, I think folks would just say, well, he just decided he would violate the Constitution here for the, the greater good. And there are people, even to this day, who, who point to that, that sort of legacy of executive action and say, well, this is what's led the groundwork to an out-of-control presidency. And and do you think that that's a, a reasonable, I guess, real knock on, on Lincoln's actions? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you know, there, one, of, one of my chapters is about a guy from the Cincinnati area, where you are, uh, George H. Pendleton, who was a congressman, a Democrat, so the opposing party in Ohio, and a presidential aspirant who uh, battled with Lincoln over the use of the Constitution to suppress critical speech. Lincoln did violate the Constitution as interpreted by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1861 by arresting people without bringing them before a judge. The right of habeas corpus was violated, according to the Chief Justice. Lincoln said, I'm not violating, I'm interpreting the Constitution my own way. Because you can, you can suspend it in, in cases of rebellion. The question is how and who gets to do that. And so, so, so he, he did that. And and he did a lot of other things that expanded federal power. He he had a Congress that was on his side because he was lucky that the fiercest opposition, the Southern Confederates, had withdrawn from Congress. And so his party had big majorities and they could pass laws to back up his desire to arrest people who were considered dangerous, who were considered potential traitors and hold them without charge, suspending the right of habeas corpus in certain cases. The one with George H. Pendleton is Pendleton going to the White House to protest because Lincoln's administration has arrested the candidate for governor of the Democratic Party in the state of Illinois, or the guy who was on his way to being the candidate for governor of the Democratic Party, and he was later nominated even after being brought into, brought into custody. This guy had criticized the war. He called it a wicked abolition war. In other words, a war for the freedom of the slaves rather than whatever he thought the war should be about, or rather that the war maybe shouldn't be fought at all. And he was essentially arrested for giving a speech. And this is something that Lincoln had the right to do, even by the chief justice's interpretation of the Constitution. You could arrest people like that if Congress authorized it, and by then Congress had. So Lincoln had the right to do it, but Lincoln himself knew it wasn't right. They were fiercely criticized. The administration was fiercely criticized. And Lincoln had to defend or decided that he had to defend this action 
that he believed to have been a mistake because he thought that undoing the mistake would be worse than just playing it through and, and going through to the end of it. So it's, it's a hard case. I think the part of the critique that you give that is true is that Lincoln did oversee a massive expansion of the power of the federal government, which was necessary to win the war. They borrowed immense amounts of money, more than they ever had before. They created paper money, which states had had and banks had had, but the federal government had not done up to then. And those greenbacks vastly expanded the economy and expanded the money supply and also expanded the power of the federal government. They drastically expanded the army, although they shrank it again, of course, after the war. In fact, they dismantled a lot of the powers and authorities of the federal government that grew up during the war. But it was the first truly great expansion of the federal government. And I agree with, I guess, the critics. I'm not sure that it's a criticism from my point of view, but I agree with their general outline that it set precedence for the expanding power of the federal government in later later generations. The, the thing that I would contend with critics about is that I don't know that's been bad in every case. You know, was it bad that the federal government also expanded its power to win World War II? I mean, let's have the discussion. Is it, you know, bad that there was a war on poverty? Oh, I don't know. Let's look at the results of that and see how it went. I mean, you you could probably make your critiques on specific issues. But the idea that there was a government that can do things when they really need to be done, like World War II, how do you argue about that? And in reading the book, it occurred to me that it comes out at what might be a particularly good time that, you know, there are a lot of people who would say, my God, we're as divided as we've been since the Civil War. And so I'm wondering if there's anything that you learned or that you said you saw in Lincoln's approach to leading in such divided times that you think might help us in our our time to pull us back from what sometimes, you know, on some of my worst days feels like to be the brink. Yeah, I think that there is something there. And it's not that you avoid all conflict. I mean, if we're taking Lincoln as an example, he did, again, fight a civil war against people who fired the first shot and tried to break up the the United States. He didn't kiss and make up with them, nor did he let them go in peace. So that's not the lesson. But the lesson, there are several lessons, and one of them, the basic one, I think, is that Lincoln did try to deal with people who disagreed with him. He didn't write them off. We do have a tendency today, some of us, to think that it's morally wrong to talk to people who disagree with us, especially on a great moral issue, and to, to, to say that there's no reason that we should talk to this person. It's actually damaging to us to talk with them. It may be naive because they're never going to change their mind, or it just stains us in some way to have any association with them because it legitimizes them. We should not platform them. We should not hear from them. That is a modern view, and it wasn't really... Lincoln's view, he would talk to all kinds of people and try to gain advantage. I think that people who would criticize that might not quite have the same idea of it. I think Lincoln did. There are people today who will say, why would I talk with someone who does not recognize my humanity? If you're a person of color, if you're in any number of minority groups, LGBTQ, you might say, why would I talk with or try to be friendly with someone who denies my rights uh, or, or who denies my equality. And I would agree with you there. I mean, if, if there's anybody listening who has that point of view, I would agree with you. There's no reason that you should subject yourself to abuse from your relative who denies who you are or your, or your neighbor who, who you know, is horrible to you. Why would, I, why would I tell anyone that they should subject themselves to that? But in a sense of democracy, what is essential for every person, whether they're in a minority group or a majority group or anything else, is that you need to have a majority at your back that recognizes your rights or that recognizes the need for all to keep the system going, recognizes some value in America and in the American Republic, and will give some support to, to the system that, that, that protects us all. That requires a majority. If we're going to have a functioning country that is also a democracy, we do need to have a majority of people who find things to agree with. And that's a thing that Lincoln did. I mean, one of the 16 chapters is his meeting, series of meetings, really, with a friend of his named Joseph Gillespie in Illinois, who was a nativist. 
I know nothing, as they were called, these these people in anti-immigrant societies. And Lincoln found their views repugnant, but he still dealt with Gillespie and tried to get political help from Gillespie to get other nativists to vote for Lincoln because he knew he needed their votes. They still had a vote, even though they were wrong. He appealed to them not on their immigration views, which he never endorsed, but he appealed to them on the basis of opposing slavery because some of them opposed slavery. And I think that gets to something that a lot of us can do, whether we're thinking about political coalitions or even like what we're going to do at Thanksgiving with a troublesome relative. Like you're probably not going to change your, you're probably not going to change your relative's view over Thanksgiving dinner that they've developed over 30 years. You know, that they're in the other party and they have a different view of Donald Trump or any number of things. And so, you know, going directly at them to try to change their mind might be a waste of time and a great frustration and a thing you don't want to do. But there might be some narrow area where you can agree that the Constitution is important. It just seems to me that one one thing that Lincoln knew, I guess, or intuited, is that you can you can, if you if you go at people in a way that we so commonly do these days, you risk turning an opponent into some sort of an implacable enemy, and that's so much worse. And yet, it seems like that's a lesson that's lost on a lot of modern people and even modern politicians. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not that if you're nice to people that they're all going to change their minds and be with you. Sometimes you've got to have a fight. But Lincoln was very selective in who he fought with and very selective in what he said. He he would often fall silent as even though he's a talkative guy, he would often avoid saying things that he thought might might not not benefit the situation politically. And then at, at the end of the war, obviously, Lincoln's side that the North was was victorious. And yet there was. I would argue a, a certain generosity of spirit, right? It, it was a vision of reconciliation. And, you know, I think in in the wake of, say, the 2020 election, such a, a bitter time, not a civil war, but, but a bitter time, I don't see a lot of prominent voices calling for that sort of spirit of, rec- you know, reconciliation and unity. And, and I'm wondering if, if you see anyone out there who's rising to that occasion or, or, or even close to it. Yeah, I, I don't know if that is exactly what I see. I mean, we should note there was a lot of bitterness at the end of the Civil War and like Reconstruction period almost was like refighting some of those battles for years afterward. And then after Reconstruction, we fought them all again. I mean, it, so, so it's not like everything was, was, was reconciled or on the way to, to being reconciled. But you asked about now. I feel that we have a lot of almost like business incentives set up to not agree. I think that social media companies do really well when we disagree. I think there are certain media organizations that do really well selling us the idea of anger, set working on our anger. And so there's a lot of people who profit off of our disagreement. And I guess that was probably also true in, in the 1860s and beyond, but, but it's like worse now. And that makes it, that makes it really, really hard. I think that there is a basic principle of democracy which is being overlooked, which was absolutely look, overlooked after the 2020 election by one side. And that is when you lose an election, you've lost the election, but nothing is ever over. You can go and fight the next election. You don't have to continuously go back and claim you won the election that you obviously lost. And there are people throughout American history who've had trouble with that basic principle, but that is the, 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 the American principle. Donald Trump lost in 2020. And we know this because we were all there and there were 60 lawsuits over this, more than 60 lawsuits, and he lost them all. And not only that, thousands of election officials in every state from both political parties affirmed the results that Donald Trump lost and Joe Biden won. The end. And then the next question is, if you think that Joe Biden is a lousy president, you can run the next election. Now, Trump actually is doing that part. Although it seems like he might be in, in court during the time that he's also running. But I mean, we, we can have another election over this. If people think that that is an election that is worth rerunning, well, you can do it again in 2024. That is democracy. People continue arguing and people will continue arguing over the substantive issues of Trump's presidency and Biden's presidency and what is the best way to govern the United States and make our way in the world. It bothers me a little bit, though, that I think that we spend a lot of time on sort of mindless distractions or substance-free divisions 
I mean, arguments over memes and what people said on social media and the pose that a member of Congress can take and you know, deposing the, the, the head of the House of Representatives because he did what is arguably just the normal business of government. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of things that it's hard to see why we need to make them so divisive. That is frustrating. But the one thing that is, I guess, hopeful in a way is that we go on. The thing that I said a minute ago, the argument is never over. So we're in a particularly bad phase of the argument, but we're supposed to have an argument. It's okay that not all of us agree. If all of us agreed, it'd be a totalitarian state. But what we need to do is make sure in every election or as many elections as we can manage that we assemble a majority that is in favor of this republic and that is in favor of moving forward in the best way we can figure out at the time. Well, that sounds like a good, at least semi-hopeful note to close on. And so that's what we'll do. Steve Inskeep, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling, knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause. But you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff, is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politicsguys. You can also support the show through PayPal. And all of our support links are always in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.